Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I'm joined by Marav Lefkowitz. Marav, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Could you start off by telling folks a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, my name is Marav Lefkowitz. I'm a UX writer and copywriter. I help um, tech companies um, hook leads, create a better user and customer experience, and communicate their story and get their messages across through copy. Cool. All right, great. And you sent in a question through my mailing list. Could you share that with the audience? And then we can just discuss that. Sure. Um, as a UX writer, as a freelancer, outs freelancer outsourced UX writer, um, I do the writing for products. So apps, platforms, websites, um, basically anything that happens kind of behind the login page or the sign-in page. Mm -hmm. And um, so things like buttons and error messages and onboarding flows and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and because I work on products that are basically living, breathing, constantly changing, um, I work with typically the product team or the designers, the developers, kind of that whole group of people. Mm -hmm. um, they're not, they're not easily one and done projects. It's like, I'll do the project typically has a, a voice and tone portion where we kind of talk about the users and define the voice and tone and the messaging and decide what kind of tone we're going to use and set all sorts of messages for consistency mm -hmm. and kind of what terminology we're going to use and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I do the actual writing. And then I think that in some senses, the tricky part comes after that, which is typically once I've learned and defined the style and the voice and tone and the terminology and all of that, it makes sense for me to continue working with the company. And that's typically what they want because they work in sprints typically. So, you know, every two weeks they could be coming out with a new feature that will potentially need some sort of new copy. Mm -hmm. um, so the challenge I come I come up against is pricing and really just kind of how do I keep working on an ongoing basis with clients? Because um, right now I've defined a pretty clear structure for kind of doing that whole voice and tone in the initial writing and all of that. But then what happens after that? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So what you're describing is pretty common with anybody who does like an initial phase like you do. So you've got kind of a a first tier, first step, first phase, whatever you want to call it, where you do sort of big picture stuff, you know, the tone, the, the voice, the messaging, the, 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 you're not probably writing, maybe you're writing a little bit, but you're not, you know, completing all of the, all of the user interface objects, right? It's just, sometimes I am sorry to, sorry to interrupt you. Sometimes I am. Um, I, I typically do like the voice and tone and then I'll do a full overview of the product. Um, but it's really a snapshot of like where the product is right now at a certain right. point in time. And then the products, obviously, you know, they have tons of people working on them mm -hmm. and it could be something that's, that's evolving. So then what happens after that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that first phase for like a software developer, that might be something like, um, you know, a, a system architecture or picking a tech stack or capturing a bunch of key user journeys for a, an MVP or a million other things. But it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's what I would call the, like a higher altitude engagement than execution. So it's like a, at a strategic level, you're engaging with probably the, the 
people farther up in the organization in that initial phase, you know, probably the surely the product owner, I would, I would guess, right? Uh, yep. Maybe even people above the product owner who are, you, you, who knows, found, you tell me, like, uh, do you sometimes work with the founder? Are they involved in those meetings where you're picking things like tone and messaging? Yeah, it really depends on the company. And I work with some, I work with sometimes like R&D centers of um, big companies, mm-hmm. like big conglomerate type companies that are working on specific, you know, they typically have like squads that are working on specific products. Um, but at a startup, um, a smaller startup or a mid level startup, then yeah, of course, it could definitely be, it could be the C-level, it could be the chief product officer, it could be sometimes the CEO, if it's a small startup, the founder, like you said, Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes the VP product. Mm -hmm. um, And then, and then of course the product manager who's uh, responsible for that specific product or feature or area. Mm -hmm. And, and then after that, when you get into this kind of maintenance mode where the dev team is cranking out features and the features have interface and, and you need to do your piece, Who's usually in those meetings? Is it still the founder and the chief product officer? Or do those people disappear and you're working with the product manager and the devs? It's typically the product manager and the designers. Um, devs, not as much, um, mm-hmm. but occasionally devs if we need to understand certain error messages or certain types of flows. But but typically I would say uh, product manager and designer, product mm-hmm. designer. Okay. So... Uh, you can tell by the attendance, you know, who's attending these meetings that that once you get into that sort of execution phase, it's less important that the the top people in the organization are involved because you've already defined the strategy and now you're just, you know, you've got a plan and now you're just executing the steps of the plan and doing your piece. So it's switched from kind of more expertise style work up front into more labor type work, not that there's no creativity or expertise in it, but it's, it's much more execution is much more labor oriented. Um, so it's a lower altitude of involvement. And I think in your question, you even referred to it as maintenance or ongoing maintenance. Yeah, mm-hmm, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there are kind of two portions of it. There's, there's definitely like what I call the um, UX writing part of the initial sprint. That's what I call the, the sort of package that I've outlined where the first part is the voice and tone and the second part is the actual writing, but that's kind of the full overview writing. Um, and I also use that writing to pick out like patterns and create templates because obviously with um, products, you'll have error messages, inline error messages that repeat themselves or um you know, confirmation pop-ups so we can kind of set a format and the higher level people might be part of those or they'll look it over and say, yeah, this makes sense for, for our audience or no. Um, and then afterwards that typically that whole process, voice and tone, plus the writing, mm-hmm. plus like the creation of a style guide and all of that, that typically takes about a month to six weeks. Okay. Um, but then the maintenance part is usually what happens afterwards. Right. Okay. And you, you use the phrase in the email and here that it makes sense for you to do the maintenance piece. What do you mean by that? Um, I think, I mean, that it makes sense that um, either I or that I have a, a junior UX writer on my team, it makes sense for us to continue doing it and not just hand it off to the client for them to find someone else to do it or to try to do it in-house. Occasionally, I mean, we do try to set up the infrastructure so that if they were to decide that they wanted to bring on an in-house UX writer, which has happened, mm-hmm. um, they have 
kind of guidelines for how to continue the writing process. But a lot of times clients aren't looking for that. They're looking for really someone to, to go to every time they release a new feature, like someone who knows the product. By that point, you know, I've really learned the product. I understand their audience. I know who um, they're targeting. I know their language, all of that. So at that point, they're not really looking to bring someone else on and onboard them and teach them everything. Sure. Um, imagine, if you will, that your price was really high for that, though. And they were like, hmm, that's kind of high. After an engagement like you're describing, it's per- it's it totally fits into like a strategic altitude of involvement with the client. It's it's perfect. It's like a, it's a lot of times people will call it like a road mapping phase or something. It depends on what you do. But once that's over, just like you said, it's really common for the the client to want to keep you on board because you're already up to speed and they trust you. You've got you know you've been working with them for four to six weeks, so. Um, they they are almost always want that, but it doesn't mean it makes financial sense for them, and it doesn't mean it makes financial sense for you. So sure. they really they really have three options, broadly speaking. The first is that they could do it in house, like you described, and you do give them the tools to do that if they wanted to. Um, you, you, they could take this, call it a deliverable, and hand it off to someone less expensive than you. They could go somewhere and and find somebody on Upwork that you know, has five stars and, and could take this roadmap and just run with it for less money than it would cost to uh, keep you engaged. Or they could pay a premium to get what they really want, which is for you to just keep rolling with the plan. So how do you currently price that maintenance piece? Well, um, and this is why I reached out to you. Um, in the past it was, it was all hourly. Um, And I was able to kind of come up with, for that sprint portion, kind of a a project-based fee, Mm -hmm. um, which again, I think is probably worth reconsidering and looking at again. And, um, and then the, the, the ongoing maintenance part is the part that I really have a challenge with because I don't, because on one hand, I want to tell clients, um, this is how much you're getting. If, if I do the maintenance for you and it's hard for me to, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of like, it's going to be up to 10 screens a month yeah, yeah, or yeah. something like that, or up yeah. to, you know, because sometimes it's a screen and sometimes it's an email, like a transactional email. And sometimes it's something else, sometimes it's naming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other option, you know, the, the way that people tradi- traditionally work is hourly. So then where do I, where do I fall in there? Mm-hmm. Well, I would, I would definitely not rule out the idea of not doing this kind of work and just doing the first four to six week phase, which I'll, I'll refer to as a roadmap phase. Uh, if you could get enough business to, you know, afford your lifestyle doing just that phase, would that be attractive? Yes. Um, I think there's, there's an extra component to the maintenance part, which is that it just, never ends right it's like <laughs> could be ongoing forever and it ends up being a lot of just jobs to be done yeah. um i Ooh. like it because i do feel like um i do like getting to know the products and i like working on the products and kind of having my part in creating these products but but it can definitely just stack up if i continue bringing on doing a ux writing sprint and bringing on a whole new client and then they expect me to do the maintenance mm-hmm. it's just 
endless. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but you're, and right now you're charging by the hour for it. So what are the, could you drill into the things you don't like about that? I mean, endless could be a good thing in terms of stability and, you know, not having to look for new work, but the way you've, the way your tone sounded like endless, like, ugh, like rolling your eyes is the, is there anything really wrong in your mind? What are the things that are wrong in your mind about doing the maintenance stuff hourly? Um, I think that it, it, there, it constantly feels like things are coming into my inbox or click up board or whatever, mm -hmm. um, or Slack. Um, so in that sense, I also do just to give a little bit of context, I also do copywriting and copywriting is much more like, like clear cut, you know, you write the copy for a website, you maybe do one or two rounds of edits and then it's done. The project is done. It, you know, seal it up, move on to the next thing. Um, and I really like UX writing. I love UX writing. It's, it's, um, really a niche that I've carved out for myself. And then this ongoing part, um, makes it feel less like a clean break at the end of a project. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other thing is that I am fast. And as you've mentioned in a lot of your work, um, there's, there's like a cap to how much I can charge hourly for it. You know, mm -hmm. I can do something for, um, and I've done now I'm kind of in a place where I do retainers, um, but they're also hourly based. So it's like a five hour, 10 hour or 15 hour retainer per month. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if I end up working three hours, they'll still pay for five hours if that's the retainer or if I end up working three hours and they, the retainer is 10 hours, then they'll still pay the 10 hours, but it still feels, you know, tied into that whole hourly model. Right. What if, what if, I mean, they're used to all your clients, I'm going to guess are used to working in sprints, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So what if you price it on two week sprints? I'm assuming. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What if, what if you said it's like $5,000 a sprint and whatever comes up, comes up and you'll just tackle it. That's interesting. Yeah. They're used to working that way. They're used to paying their employees that way. You could, you could do monthly because it's close. It's similar. They, and they probably pay the employees monthly. You probably don't pay them per sprint, but they're certainly used to that sprint cadence. And if the price was right for you, I have to imagine that, uh, and maybe you limit it to like one team, you know, cause if they had 20 teams cranking out features that you'd be, it'd be impossible for you for one person to handle all that. But let's say you limit it to like one team, you know, they've got like a couple developers and a designer maybe, and you are the UX writer for that pod and it, it's five grand per sprint and you can keep going until you, you're, you feel like you can dry your own hair as, uh, as my, uh, my person who cuts my hair says <laughs> it's like once they feel like they can take over, they can stop paying you $5,000 every two weeks with that. And there's no hours involved there. It's like when you're done, you're done. And you know, maybe some sprints would be really busy, but probably, probably I'm going to guess that, that developers are going to have, it's going to take them longer to crank things out than it would take you to do your part. So it feels like it would have a self-limiting, uh, uh, characteristic where they kind of couldn't overwhelm you, but you tell me, do you think, do you think certain sprints just, just, um, would place a huge demand on your time, uh, too frequently or what do you think? No, I think, no, I think that that could be reasonable. I mean, it may have to have, you know, like, I think by the time they loop me in and communicate 
what they need, there's probably a little bit of buffer time. Um, so, so maybe monthly would make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that makes sense to structure. I mean, it's definitely worth trying. Like, I think it would also give me uh, the opportunity to be more involved and not just be on the receiving end of like, here's, here's a new feature. We need copy for it, write it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something that I would be interested in, in being part of, like being seeing the whole involved. strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seeing the, the strategy and seeing what's on the table and what's, what's planned for the sprint and what's planned for further down the road. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. That so yeah. So you could, you could position it as a sort of a, a monthly retainer, but it's not an hours retainer. It's, it's a retainer for access to your expertise with some amount of, well, with unlimited writing included. So, so execution would be included. Uh, it's a little, it's a little unusual for me to come across a scenario where someone would be both doing both that sort of advisory, let's talk about strategy uh, for this new feature or this new module, and, and I'll go write it for you at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little unusual, but for the for where you're at, it might be a nice step up. And there could be a, it could be a point in the future where you're like, geez, I'm just going to hand off all the actual writing to my junior, and yeah. I'll just be in the meetings and and sort of collaborate with the client to make you know, decisions around to help them make decisions around how this next thing is going to be, make sure that everything's in line with the overall voice of the product. But, you know, maybe there's some differences in this area because it's going to be used, I don't know, by uh, client facing people or internal people as different group of of constituents are going to use this piece of the software. Maybe it makes sense to be a little more professional or a little less um, formal, whatever. And that makes sense. Okay. And then, and then you say, okay, we made the decision. And then you communicate that to your junior and that person just cranks out the work. And if you are, you know, uh, charging enough for the the month and, you know, and not, not paying too much of that to the junior, then everybody's happy. So you could crank out probably, in, uh, I don't want to say unlimited, but, but you could probably on an unlimited basis, you could crank out enough copy to satisfy the particular month, you know, the client in the particular month. Mm-hmm. The tricky piece with it is since it's kind of a use it or lose it proposition, they it would be problematic if they were real streaky in terms of their output. So, you know, maybe maybe they bring you in uh, at the beginning and they do, you know, they've got like a big feature that they're releasing or an entire module and they you work through the whole thing and it's, you know, all told it's like six months of development and with your involvement and then boom, it launches. And then they go into this kind of like fallow period for three months. And it's like, well, we're not going to pay you $10,000 a month. We don't have anything for you. So if, right. in, if they don't have uh, cons- uh, uh, consistent enough demand um, for your services, in other words, if they're not producing consistently producing new pieces of user interface, then it would be, uh, it would probably be relatively short-lived with that client, which maybe is not a bad thing because then you'd get that clean break that you're looking for. You know, they do right. a launch and they're like, geez, we just, we don't have anything for you. It's like, okay, we can pause. Um, or you could move me over to another team that's doing, uh, that's, that's same, same product, but, or related product that's working on a different piece of it. Like, I don't know, the API or the backend or uh, something else. Mm-hmm. and just transfer you to a different team. But probably it would just be like, okay, we're good for now. Pause the relationship. And yeah, let me know when the next big release is coming out. 
hit me up in advance so I can be involved in the, you know, early meetings and we just turn it back on. Right. Right. That, and that's typically when clients contact me, it's either they're doing a full redesign of their product or, um, they're developing a new product, um, or they just kind of realized that having their one in-house content writer, who's not even an expert UX writer, Mm. isn't enough, isn't cutting it for the user experience that they're trying to, to offer. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so, you know, I'm throwing around, you know, $5,000 for a sprint, $10,000 for a month. Are those numbers in the ballpark for what your clients would be able to be able to afford or consider reasonable? I don't know. They sound a little bit high, mm-hmm. but um, obviously I would, <laughs> I would love to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I will say I'm based in Tel Aviv. So um, the numbers are all kind of a little bit lower in general. Um, Everyone says that. Numbers are always, no, numbers are, no matter where the person lives in the world who I talk to, they say, well, things are tight here. <laughs> it's like, it's like, nah, people are driving Mercedes everywhere. You're right. People are, yeah, Teslas and Mercedes for sure. Right. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, for sure. I mean, I just started working with a client who uh, told me that they are making $100 million in, rev- in annual revenue. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, suddenly $5,000, $10,000 a month to make their product amazing mm-hmm. um, and have a great user experience and a great customer experience doesn't sound that unreasonable to me. Right. Yeah. It just comes down to the credibility. Like, do they believe that you're the right person? And do they believe that what you do will actually contribute to that delightful user experience? So do you do you talk about that? Do you have any kind of testimonials or or f- even informal feedback from clients that that indicate they believe that what you did contributed to things like decreased churn or improved conversion from free trial to paid or anything like that? That's one of the challenges of not being an in-house UX writer. I think that I don't have a lot of the follow through that I would love to have and the ability to test, um, you know, AB test certain copy. Like I can give them copy for a button and say, I recommend AB testing it, but ultimately it's up to them to handle the A-B testing and see if they actually want to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So those actual numbers are hard for me to get, but I think that, um, but not impossible. I also, I think it would be possible. Mm -hmm. I also think that, you know, if we went into it as a, as a much clearer engagement and not just like we need copy, (laughs) um, then, then it would make a lot of sense. Yeah. It makes sense to me. I mean, the, a huge piece of the user interface is the words. A huge, I mean, it's like maybe, you know, there's a lot of important things in the interface, but words are right up there. If, you, if you've ever like right. seen a, an interface that somehow got like switched, the localization got switched to like a language you don't speak, all of a sudden you're like, I, this is meaningless. I don't know what, it's nothing. Well, at the words, it's nothing. So. Right, absolutely. I mean, I, I also do UX writing workshops for teams and that's something I say, like you can have the most beautiful design, you can have the greatest functionality, the tightest code. And if you don't have words, your users aren't going to know what to do. Like they just simply, they simply won't know which button to click and what, what's going to happen and which form to fill out and, and all of that. So it's, it's critical. Um, and, and 
kind of one of the challenges is that really great UX writing is UX writing that you don't notice Mm -hmm. Um, because the experience is so smooth. You don't have to stop and ask yourself what's happening here. Um, what, what's going to happen when I click on this button, you know, you don't even notice it. So I think sometimes people don't even realize how important it is. Right. Yeah. Well, just switch it to Arabic and see if you can, (laughs) or whatever, Mm -hmm. switch it to Mm -hmm. Japanese and see if you can find your way around. That's an, you know, not that we need to explore new lines of business or product ideas for you, but do you get involved with localization? Is that a thing that uh, comes up in any kind of regular basis? A little bit. Um, I sometimes do that. Yeah, a little bit. Um, It's kind of funny because in my past life, before I was a a copywriter and a UX writer, I was actually a translation and localization manager. So I do have, I do kind of wear that hat and I bring it into the projects and I've done uh, UX writing workshops for localization teams as well, because they need to understand, they usually just get a a list of of strings, excuse me, like a CSV of strings. Right. And um, they lack the context. So a lot of times it's me just even teaching them, like, these are the best practices for buttons so that when you're QAing a button, um, you know, make sure that you have this context. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so localization is, is a little bit um, an area that I get into. And I would certainly be interested to kind of incorporating, interested in incorporating it more. Uh, yeah, that seems like a really interesting question to ask in either in a sales interview with a client who's sniffing around and thinking about hiring you, or if they were in that initial four to six week period, like right off the bat, like, are we going to be worrying about localization? Is that on the roadmap in the next three years? Cause if so, maybe we'll make different decisions now than we would otherwise. And, and that's a very, very high level business question that is, is, potentially going to set you apart from a lot of other people who are just like, yeah, where do you need the copy? Okay. I'll write it there. And for sure. Yeah. It's a, that's a, a big question. And, um, what, so, okay. So not, not to, not to drag you into other, other places, but I think, so let's talk about the initial sprint and I, and I don't love the name sprint for a couple of reasons, but, uh, do you, is that how you refer to it? it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's more like the problem with sprint first of all, is that you said it takes four to six weeks. And I think everybody reads sprint as two weeks, two weeks. And that was the original, by the way, that was the original idea that I would do it all in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but the clients were really slow mm-hmm. and yeah, they got course. stuck on, on their side. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't able to get the feedback or even get them into meetings to do it right. all within, within two weeks. Right. Yeah. That's normal. So, okay. So, so calendar time, it takes four to six weeks. For you, um, hours, uh, imagine there's a fair amount of waiting around. So it's certainly not full-time work. Yes. Correct. Okay. And, and what is the, you listed some deliverables they get, what is it? What's the package they get at the end of that? They basically get two main deliverables. Um, the first one is the voice and tone style guide, um, which is split up into two parts. The first part being, um, high level kind of voice and tone um, guidelines Mm -hmm. and mess up, you know, key messages and pain points and, and all of that kind of background. Um, And the second part, which I do after I've done the writing um, is the more, is more of the mechanics. So lists of terminology and um, template messages for different types of components 
stuff like that. Cool. Um, and then the that that's one deliverable. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, right now, all of that is just basically text, like a text file, mm-hmm. um, like slides, but a text. Um, and and you- I would love to turn it into some sort of like the components part. Certainly, I would love to turn into some sort of product or something a little bit more. Yeah, techie. That sounds, <laughs> yeah, it's not, yeah, like uh, not fancy, but like a, a nice packaged presentation that is going to feel it's going to project value. Yeah, it sounds it sounds very cool. I mean, of course, I'm familiar with designers doing style guides and that sort of thing. And they usually look real pretty clients like this are probably used to that kind of thing. So having having the the style guide for the voice um, being, you know, packaged up nicely, I think would be a, a really good idea and relatively easy to do. Uh, the, the templating sounds really cool. It sounds interesting and valuable and novel. It sounds like something that a air quotes normal or a generic copywriter would be like, wait, what? It doesn't sound like the kind of thing I've ever heard a copywriter talking about. Um, so that's really cool. It's very specific. And what you said you are doing a fixed price for these right now. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Sorry, and then there's just that's that's one part, and then the other part is the actual UX writing of of the screens, like for the different screens. But how? Okay, so so basically, you do the strategy piece, and that's got the the deliverable that right now is a text document, and mm-hmm. and then you do some amount of writing, that just like execution, or is it Correct. creation of templates? Okay, so I would split that piece off if it wasn't if it wasn't required for you to do a good job on the, the voice and tone style guide and all of that stuff. So if you, if you had like something like, um, yeah, I mean, you could call you could almost call it like a, yeah, what would you call it? I don't want it to be too wordy, but you know, voice and tone style guide for the UX of the inner for the interface UX voice, UX voice, something there ux voice style guide we can also play a little bit with content design because that's kind of the new name Mm. for for ux writing okay content design is interesting feels a little yeah there's some there's something there i feel like i want to get the word ux in there unless that new term is widely understood i think ux has become widely understood in this audience for this audience so that's that's typically why i continue to use ux writing even though companies like Facebook Meta have now uh, called all of their UX writers content designers, and that's kind of the direction it's going mm-hmm. for in-house titles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think UX writing is clearer to most people. Yeah. So if you if you you know just to keep it from being too wordy, if you sold like a UX voice roadmap or style guide or UX voice guide that consisted of you know, these meetings with the higher ups to make sure everybody's on the same page and you've got the direction and you're like, okay, this aligns with the overall business strategy. And I don't know, you know, the locale and the type of user and it, okay, that everybody's in agreement that this is the, the right approach. And then you go and, and take that piece of information and you create templates and guidelines for people to run with it, you know, enough, enough uh, structure so that people who are reasonably qualified at doing content design would would be able to, uh, in theory, 
run with it. Like they, like you wouldn't need to do the execution. So you get this, they get this nice package. It's like, okay, this is going to define the way that we, that we write tech, we put text in the product, uh, that if you didn't then do some actual writing, how long do you think that that would take calendar wise, bearing in mind that the clients are always the bottleneck? Um, I think at that point, the client isn't as much of the bottleneck. Okay. Um, so probably a week. The one thing I will say is that um, the template component, the kind of style guide, the actual mechanics style guide mm -hmm. is something that I do need to see the product fairly. I need like a fairly in-depth review of the product in order to create that because it's obviously very product specific. And a lot of times what happens is I'll go through all the screens, decide on a format for a certain type of success message or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll go into the style guide and, and document that basically. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that isn't to say that I need to do all the writing at that point. I could probably just do a, a review of it all. Right. And kind of come up with an idea. Yep. Okay. So that's perfect. I, I like that. It, I, would, I would love it if this initial engagement with each client was devoid of execution. And it was all high-level instructional planning, guidelines, all of those sorts of things. And you're like, there you go. It generally takes four weeks. Um, and it costs $25,000. And with this document, you can then either do it in house, or if you have, you know, this kind of a person in house, you could have them do it, or you could go find somebody cheap on Upwork or wherever you want to go find a copywriter to do this, or you can hire me for $10,000 a month and I'll stay on board as an advisor and help and, and, and kind of embed myself in one product team or whatever they call the teams and, and do the actual writing as new features are being generated. And I feel like that, like the, the initial piece needs to be more than any given month of the maintenance. For sure. So yeah, that'd be my approach. That would be my approach. The, the Another thing that occurred to me is that you could have another product or this could be content marketing for you where you do uh, sort of UX tear, like tear downs of good and bad products that you know, where you see, you know, best practices happening or anti-patterns, it would be a, mm -hmm. probably an endless stream of content that you could do. Yeah. Or, or, and it could be a product. You, so you could, you could just like, you know, have a YouTube channel where you do this uh, UX voice teardowns and go through and like, you know, you have a hall of shame for someone just, someone just sent me a, a screenshot of a error message that just said, no, that was the whole error <laughs> message. Right. That's so, how we all feel. That's how we all feel after two years of the pandemic. Just no. Just no. Don't click that. Stop that. So, right. So you could do, it, it could be funny. It could be, um, it, it could be serious, whatever, but it would be an endless stream of content. And then you could have a, a product where you do teardowns for, for, uh, some SaaS company or whatever they say, Oh, you know, we, we, uh, love the channel. We, we have these sorts of problems that you talk about all the time, like bad, uh, bad job converting free trials to paid, or you know, people all click through the beautiful marketing site, but then as soon as they get to their first app screen, they all bounce. So we know something's wrong. We don't think it's the we don't think it's the color scheme. <laughs> so 
uh, anyway, so you could you in your content marketing, you could be talking all the time about the importance of the words on the interface. And without the words, it's useless. So the words are obviously important. And if you're having these kinds of problems, like bad conversions, or lots of churn, or um, lots of customer service. Uh, yes, yeah. that's a huge one. Yep. Yeah, support tickets. Yep, it's tons of support tickets, right. And it's like, ugh, you just, you know, you have to explain how to do everything then that that's already there. Like, oh, I wish it did this. It does do that. It's like the most painful message to hear. So, okay. So you could constantly be tying all of these really high level, important business metrics for these kinds of founders into your content marketing while you're doing these teardowns like Slack does a great job or, you know, this old legacy software does a terrible job or whatever. And then sell that actual product to someone who just have you do a teardown on their thing. And then maybe it's great and you give it an A plus, or maybe you tear it to shreds, or maybe it's somewhere in between. And you can say, well, you know, here's what I would do here. Here's what I would do there. And these could take way under an hour where, you know, you, you'll do, you say like, I'll do a 30 minute teardown. You turn on whatever you turn on Vimeo and just start recording it. And a half an hour later, you've either given them a good grade, a bad grade, somewhere in between and a bunch of suggestions. You send that over. I don't know. It's a few thousand bucks. And if they're like, wow, you know, it's, it's an obvious first rung on a product ladder that would lead to, we need your help. And yeah. then it's 25,000 for this UX voice style guide engagement. It's that's, I haven't, there's no obvious great name for it yet. You want to workshop that, but coming yeah. up with a, a really clear and descriptive name, that's not too long. Um, and just say, yeah, this is, this is the next step for you. And they say, great, let's do that. And you do it. And then they say, this is amazing. Uh, can you just write it for us? And you say, yup, it's $10,000 a month. I'll stay on board as an advisor. And I want to be in all of the new feature strategy meetings or whatever you want. And I'll hand off the actual writing, you know, and my team will do the actual writing under my oversight. And yeah, that seems like a, that seems like a nice little product ladder plus content yeah. marketing. Yeah. Cool. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. I like the teardown idea too. I think that's um, great content marketing and also a great product to just kind of be able to buy off the shelf. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. I, I feel like this has been helpful. <laughs> it yeah. sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Good, yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. It has. Yeah. This was, this was what I was looking for. Great. Um, do you have, I mean, I have more time if you have other questions or we can just tell people where they can find out more if they need a UX content expert. Yeah. Um, I guess one of my questions is just one last question is that I think that the execution portion is always a little bit uh, kind of hairy. And I guess in some ways what we came up with now is moving me away from the execution and I'm happy to have junior UX writers, like a little squad of junior UX writers doing the execution. Mm -hmm. um, but just in terms of tools and stuff like that, it's it's really hard because everyone, some teams work with Figma and some teams work with, you know, they want to kind of keep their copy tight mm -hmm. and under lock because they don't want anything to get messed up for the developers because ultimately they're going to have to export a JSON file and you know, make all those changes. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like that's also part of it not feeling like a super premium experience because it's kind of like haphazard. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know if I'm being clear enough, but Oh yeah, no, um, I totally get it. Yeah, so but you'll you'll find that out or part this could be part of your recommendations in the strategy phase where about how the team would how the team would integrate this information into their workflow in a way that will allow it to not start falling by the wayside. So you you could it would be totally reasonable for you to make workflow suggestions about first of all their attitude about accepting the information and not keeping it under lock and key, you know, so that you have access to it. Uh, you could maybe even recommend tools that are integratable. That starts to get a little sketchy. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you find out in the initial strategy phase that they would be very hard to work with on an ongoing basis, you just not do it. Yeah, true. So you could get sure. specialized on, you know, I only do execution for people who use Figma and give me access to the GitHub repo or whatever, whatever things you need to do. And if they're not willing to do that, then it's like, well, I'm out. You should probably just hire someone as an employee if you're that paranoid or locked down. Just hire someone. Here's, here's a, a search for, on a job board or here's a place you can go to find, you know, junior versions of me that can execute against this roadmap perfectly fine. Uh, but if you, you know, I don't know, if you want to be so locked down that you need an, an employee to do it, and you don't trust an outsider touching the code or whatever, then that's your best option. Yeah. 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 So uh, next step there would be for you to, to kind of like think back through your client experiences and, and uh, make a list of the characteristics of your favorite ones, you know, whatever, whatever, whether it was the dev tooling or whatever the product manager used to manage the project, whatever they, whatever the things were and have that list. And then you could just ask people like, oh, do you do execution after the roadmap? And it's like, well, maybe do you, you know, do you do, do you use these tools? What's your process like? And yeah, if you, you know, if you use, I don't know, if you use Figma and you're willing to let me touch the code or whatever, then yeah, you know, we can, we can help you with that. But if not, then your best bet is to probably hire someone internally. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because a lot of times I end up working in like comments on Figma plus screenshots and other places. Um, yeah. It just gets messy. Oh, yeah. And it's hard, it's hard for me to follow if they even integrated it correctly or. Um, yeah. No, you yeah. bring your bring your process. And if they don't want to do your process, then that's fine. They can get someone else. Yeah, yeah. I, would de I would definitely bring my process. Great. Yeah. And yeah, you just can't do a good job of it, right? Like you just described. It's like, I can't even figure out if they did what I recommended, which means that the client, if they didn't, which the client's not going to get the, the ultimate benefit, which is decreased customer support requests and decreased churn and increased conversions from free trial and so forth. So if you want to, if you want to deliver the success that they hired you for, really, then you you should be able to use your own tools and not have your your hands tied behind your back like that doesn't it's not how yep not how professionals work for sure actually on that note um this kind of takes it in another direction and i know you've talked about this on other in other interviews on on your podcast um speaking of tools there are lots of new figma plugin type tools um and i'm curious to hear if you have any ideas about affiliate you know, because if I come, ultimately the client owns the files. If, if we're talking about Figma, they own the Figma files. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these tools make the most sense if they have the access to the tool, um, but like the plugin. Mm -hmm. But if I decide to come in and I say, I want you to use 
I'm going to use this plugin as part of my work. And it's helpful for them because actually those templates and those components that I talked about are often built into these plugins. Mm-hmm. Um, but I shouldn't be the one buying the seats for the, for the plugin, right. like for the tool. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on how to kind of handle that? Like this is part of the package and I use this tool. So, right. And so what you're saying is that they would need to make a small investment in tooling up on their side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is it, is it small? Yeah. I think it's, yeah, I think it's relatively small. I mean, it's, it could be like $50 a month or so, maybe a little yeah. more. All right. I mean, if they're paying you 25 grand to come in and you know, they're not going to worry about 50 bucks a month and you yeah. would just say, you know, if, if in your, on your sales page for this, you know, you could have a list of, or in the FAQ somewhere, you know, you could say, well, there are other exp- minor expenses associated with working with me. Uh, assuming you use Figma already, that's great. Um, you're going to need these plugins. They're about, it'll be about 50 bucks a month. And yeah, and, and it's a, you know, you wouldn't have to say this, but you could make it a deal breaker if you wanted to just be like, yeah, if, if you don't have this stuff, then, or it could be prerequisites for working with me would be to have these three or four things, whatever they are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't expect a professional to operate without their tools. I mean, it's like you know, you don't you don't bring your own scalpel to a triple bypass. <laughs> the surgeon gets to pick. Hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, here's what we're using. Uh, great, great. And All right. Good good clients love that stuff. Good clients love being told what to do by an expert. That's why they want an expert. So they don't have to make the decisions. They can stop thinking about it. They can, they finally found someone they trust who's better at it than they are. And they can just release control, relinquish control and let the expert who they trust handle it. And yeah, they'll, good clients will not mind this stuff at all. Yeah, definitely. I think a big portion of what you mentioned is, is going to be education. Cause a lot of times clients, my clients are aware that they need this, but they really see it as like, jobs to be done kind of thing um so i think the what you mentioned about like a ux content teardown on youtube and content marketing could could play a big role in just getting people to understand what it means and it's not just like marav comes in and writes copy for a couple of pop-ups and we're done and then whenever we have a new pop-up like we'll just send it to her and she'll just jot out some copy it's too transactional right Right. You could even do, yeah, it's very transactional. You could even do like, like user testing where, where, um, on YouTube, you bring someone in like a friend, like a non-technical friend or whatever, you know, somebody in the target market for a product or someone or whatever, just someone with new eyes just say, well, I'm not today. I've got a guest who's going to do the teardown. We're just going to watch this person fumble their way through this interface. And they're going to, they're going to, they're going to speak their thoughts out loud as they're going. And it's so powerful to, to the people who created the software. It's like a punch in the stomach if they haven't been doing these kinds of things leading up to release. I did one of these once for a client that this, this, I thought the CTO was going to fly into a rage at his team because I, I, I just was like, well, I, this is a video of me saying my thoughts out loud as I try and do the stuff that your website's for on my phone. Cause I did mobile, mobile UX basically. And I, I thought he was going to fire people in the room. He's beat, beat red. He was so bad. The experience was so horrific that it, you know, it's, it's just such a gut punch. It's so much, it's so much more powerful 
them like best practices are to you to say I not me or you to them blah 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 blah. If you watch yep. your ideal buyer, your ideal user completely bounce off the interface and do everything wrong. There's nothing that's more persuasive than that. I love that. I love that. And I think so many companies, so many of my clients now have this uh, PLG product-led growth strategy. Mm -hmm. So it's super important to them. Like they have a freemium model and they're trying to get people to just use the product and love it. So Mm -hmm. if people don't know how to use the product or can't figure out why they should and what they need to do, um, obviously it's not going to grow. Like that's going to hamper their growth by a lot. Yeah. User activation is another one. Right. Right. So like even after they're paying, you can see they're going to churn if you're not, yeah, this is, this is all you, what you do is it's, it's like so clearly ties back to key performance metrics for a SaaS. I mean, yeah, it's way more important than how big should this button be? Yep. Cool. Definitely. Awesome. Well, well this if, is great. Yeah. If somebody wanted to get in touch with you, where's, where's the best place for them to go? The best place is my website. It's um, www.maravrights.com. That's N-E-R-A-V-W-R-I-T-E-S.com. And LinkedIn. Cool. And active on LinkedIn. Marav Lovkowitz. Good to know. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for all of your ideas. I can't wait to get started on all of these and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Shoot me an email. Let me know how it goes. I will. I definitely will. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I hope you join me again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com call. Hope to see you there.